The Athletic. Hi there, this is The Athletic Football Podcast. The Premier League, thank goodness, returns with a clash of the top two. I'm Adam Leventhal and we are really, really glad to have the Premier League back and it is back with a bang because we have some really big games and a very exciting slate of fixtures for you. Uh, let's introduce our panel and for me, we have we have two two players in here that I have not been in the studio with for a weekend preview. I will start with Ruben Pinder. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. It's good to see you. Yeah, it's good to be back. All set, raring to go? Uh, yeah, I mean, I can't get that excited uh, for Premier League football when you support Crystal Palace. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, some big games uh, elsewhere to look forward to. Are Palace the beigeest team in the Premier League? Yeah, we lose every week and finish 12th every year. Yeah. Uh, to be fair, that's quite good, though. From Coming from a Watford fan, that would be, that is manna from heaven. Uh, Colin Miller is here in the studio for the first time. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. It's lovely to be here. It's my first uh, athletic football podcast, and yeah. what a what a weekend! To, what a weekend to have it. Yeah, absolutely. And Tom Harris is here as well. How are you? <laughs> yeah, good, thank you. The experienced head, which yeah. I'm not used to being, so we'll see how that goes. Yeah, it's good to have you on board for uh, our data drops later on. Um, it is a fixture formation. Of seven two one from Saturday through until Monday. I will go through those fixtures in two seconds' time. But just before we started recording, Tom, who loves his data, as I have just said, made a, a really interesting m- remark because it concerns fixture formations. Tell me. Yeah. So last Premier League match day two weeks ago, um, we had five games on Saturday and five games on Sunday. And that's only the third time that that's happened in the last seven years. So that was a real kind of rarity. And yeah, we I don't know if it was mentioned in the in the fixed formation slot at the start of the show, but there's a golden opportunity. Yeah, I missed it. I didn't <laughs> say it. But you know what it makes me think now? Every time ahead of the weekend, I will run my fixture formation by you. So have you sti- you've stitched yourself up, Tom. Do, do, uh, do you have a favourite fixture formation? I would probably say, well, this is going to test my maths now, but I like a spread over the four days. So I like an FNF and, a, and an MNF involved. So a 1 4 4 1 yeah. would be, would be pretty a, good. That's a good spread, that. Yeah. yeah. Well, what, what happens to the formations over the Christmas period? Well, that is a very good question. I have to cross that bridge when we come to it. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? That, that has made me even more excited for Christmas. Thank you, Colin. It's got me into the spirit the, the, of it. The match days just blur into a complete like haze during over Christmas, don't they? It's like, what match week are we on? Because yeah. they just spread out, you know. Exactly. It's and just chaos. All accompanied by Quality Street, which is great. Okay, let's run you through the all-important fixtures this weekend. On Saturday, the early kickoff, it is that belter. It is Manchester City against Liverpool. Then the Saturday, three o'clocks, we have five of them. Sheffield United against Bournemouth, Nottingham Forest against Brighton, Burnley West Ham, Luton against Crystal Palace and Newcastle against Chelsea. Then the Saturday evening kickoff is the David Raya derby. It is Brentford against Arsenal. Then on Sunday, the two o'clock kickoff, 
is Tottenham against Aston Villa. Sunday evening at 4.30, it is Everton against Manchester United. And then the Monday night football is Fulham against Wolves. We will kick off, though, with the big one. So we do have that real blockbuster fixture to get the Premier League back up and running. 12.30 Saturday, Liverpool travel to Manchester City and it is Liverpool's third successive early kickoff after an international break. We know that Jurgen Klopp hates it, but this isn't one that struggles to get the juices flowing. It is an absolute belter. Um, let's just have a bit of a discussion about where we think this game is going. Ruben, I'll start with you. I, how much do you feel that this game is going to be decisive in the title race? Does it feel that that important right now? Uh, yeah, it does. I mean, Liverpool, after a very disappointing season last year, are now seemingly back to their best. They're a bit of a whisper it quietly, but oh, yeah. they could potentially win the league this season kind of outfit. And um, it, I, I remember the games when Pep first arrived, kind of that 2017 to 2019 era when they would generally dominate the Premier League but Liverpool kind of always had their number especially in like the Champions League or or the kind of uh, cup fixtures whereas then this fixture seemed to become a little bit more dominated by City they became a little bit more robust and weren't as susceptible to Liverpool's kind of chaos factor um, but I wonder if that will be different again this weekend given their you know, Stones is still out. Um, they're missing Mateusz Nunes and Mateo Kovacic. So that robustness in midfield, which I think they m were lacking a bit against Chelsea as well, because they're having to play Rodri, who is obviously the best in the world in his position, probably. But then Alvarez and Bernardo as kind of like the other number eights who are much more of, they're kind of like a nine and a ten being shoehorned into that midfield. So I wonder whether Liverpool can take advantage there and um, kind of reassert that that dominance in this in this matchup that they showed all those years ago. Tom, we've we've outed you on this podcast, correct me if I'm wrong, as a as a Manchester City fan, haven't we? Yes. So so in terms of this game, obviously you're top, Liverpool are one point back in second. Um are you are you fearing Liverpool in this game? Do you see them this season as a genuine challenger? I think you have to fear them because of, you know, the one thing that Pep Guardiola doesn't really like too much is chaos, as, as Ruben said. And then, you know, the likes of Darwin Nunez, he is the epitome of chaos up front. Um, you've got Sobers lying there as well, who's a bit more controlled. But I think, you know, Ruben was mentioning that kind of midfield battle. He's the last person you really want in there as a kind of like wide eight, you know, really going forward. He's just really, really good at kind of bursting through lines and that's the kind of thing that yeah Bernardo Silva has to chase him around he's not really going to want to do that and yeah I think before the international break the 4-4 against Chelsea it was exactly that it was that midfield battle Rodri was a bit isolated Chelsea were really overloading that kind of midfield and and it, and it told and I think if Liverpool can can kind of take a bit of inspiration for that and play the game at their pace pick it up a little bit and you know make it a bit chaotic I think yeah they've they've got every chance and Looking at their run after this as well, they've got a quite a kind run of fixtures coming up after this game. Then they have Man United, they have Arsenal and Newcastle all at Anfield before the year is out. So if they can get a result here, they, you know, they could be on track for, for a decent run before Christmas and who knows where they'll end up there. We know Ruben's a Crystal Palace fan. We know that Tom is a Manchester City fan. Colin, this is a, a safe space where you're allowed to um, tell us your allegiance is it impacting this game at all? Uh, it, it should impact it, but it's but it's not. 
I'm uh, I'm from the opposite side of Manchester. Right. Uh, okay. In terms of my allegiance. Um, Fine. I, I I'm I'm quite I'm quite sad to say at this moment in time. Usually, maybe this had been a decade ago, it would have been much more triumphalism here. But um, I've got to I've got to sort of know my place in terms of this game. What I would say in terms of this fixture is that it's very important being at the Etihad rather than at Anfield. Yeah. In a sense, at Liverpool, you can you can actually think Liverpool have won a lot here but they haven't they haven't won here since the Champions League game in 2018 so it's been over five years Man City haven't won at Anfield since 2003 so this is a game that is really heavily dependent on who's at home and I don't I don't know exactly why that is but we're saying about about Pep obviously loves to control and Klopp has that sort of chaotic element but I think Liverpool this season's almost a return to that type, isn't it? Because in in recent years, Liverpool have been more about controlling games, about about just just sort of getting a goal in front and almost seeing it out a lot of the time. That's what made them into champions. But now it feels like they're a bit more of a. There's, there's, there is just a lot more chaos. I don't know how else to describe it. There's a lot more going forward. The midfield doesn't really feel like it's protecting the defence, and you can see that in a lot of their games. I mean, they've gone. I think they've conceded eight goals in their six away matches in the league so far, and they've only won two of those matches. And okay, they've been to Newcastle. They've been to Tottenham, they've been to Brighton, Chelsea. It's a tough run of games. But it feels like this Liverpool team sort of feel like that 2018 version a little bit, don't they? And that's what I'm going to be really interested to see in this match. Can they can they do the damage to City, which they managed to do that season? And can I mean it was mentioned there, John Stones being absent. I think that's a that's a massive blow for City, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, just on that point. When Pep and Klopp have faced off at the Etihad, there's been an average of 3.8 goals per game. So hopefully, don't want to jinx anything, but we might be in for a bit of a yeah end-to-end battle, which there would was be that, great th- to watch. There was that game when Mane got sent off, Course, wasn't there? Yeah. It really skews the average there. But, <laughs> but still. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, I mean, obviously you mentioned, Colin, there about chaos, and Ruben, you'd, you'd mentioned that as well. And Tom had mentioned that Nunes is someone that embraces that that chaos. He's in good form off this international break. He scored uh, three in two games for Uruguay. Um, Jurgen Klopp is obviously happy with him, content with him. Kiva O'Neill wrote a, a great piece about how he's sort of learnt to really interconnect well with, with Mo Salah. Um, I guess, you know, there'll be a lot of onus on him to be that disruptor in a game like this. Do you, do you see him stepping up? I mean... Maybe, yeah. You, you never, it's unpredictable. Yeah, you never really yeah. know with him. He kind of he seems to need to miss a sitter before then scoring a great yeah. goal or or something along those lines. But um, yeah, I mean they have to they have to kind of put their faith in him, right? They paid a lot of money for him last season. It felt like he was a little bit uh, disjointed from the rest of the team, whereas now he seems to be clicking into you know their patterns and and things like that. So um, yeah, I mean Nunez and Salah are clicking, and um, they'll need to you know be at the top of their game to trouble. Um, you know, the likes of Diaz and, and Gavardiol. It's far more complex than one individual battle, but I'm sure there'll be, prior to the game, a focus on v- Van Dijk and, and Haaland going head-to-head. Do you see, Tom, um, Van Dijk sort of now being back at his pre-injury levels? He's he's getting there. I mean, I think there's actually been quite a lot of attention taken away from him as the kind of, you know, the elite kind of Rolls Royce, to use uh, the cliche, centre-back in, in the Premier League since William Saliba's joined. Esri Konza as well has kind of been taken up that mantle a little bit. So there's been less this kind of, you know, intense focus on Van Dijk being the best defender in the world. And I think, yeah, this is probably his biggest test of the season. Um, we're expecting, you know, City to have a lot of the ball, Liverpool to look to hit on the break. So it will be, you know, 
those two players will be spending a lot of time together. Harlan will be making a lot of runs across him and, and behind him. So, yeah, I think this is, you know, a real kind of marker that Van Dijk can put down to say that he's back if he, yeah, keeps Harlan quiet. And the, the Trent Alexander-Arnold, um, Jeremy Doku battle as well. I mean, we don't know exactly how Trent Alexander-Arnold is going to be deployed because a lot of people will be you know, seeing him talked about as a, as a midfielder and people going, well, where is he actually going to be? Is it as simple as going, right, well, you just need to exploit that space when he's not there? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a weird one with Alexander-Arnold, isn't it? Because he's now he's that midfielder f- for England when he, when he selected at international level. And with Liverpool, it's different because with Liverpool, you're, you're pushing much higher up. The, there's more intensity to the games. And I think, I think for this match, especially with the threat of Doku and his directness, right? That's, that's something that I think is going to force Klopp's hands a little bit. I think, I think there'll be instructions for Alexander-Arnold to maybe just sit in a little bit more. My my thing for this game as well is if that there was too much chaos at Stamford Bridge, wasn't there, in that 4-4 against Chelsea, I wonder if Pep will mm. rethink this one to the point of just, just being quite cautious. I mean, this all looks like there'll be all, lots of goals, right? You know, Liverpool have been very exciting to watch this year, especially away from home games around the end, City or City. I just think maybe, maybe the Man City will go a bit more reserved for this one and be like, well, you know, let's let's not rush it, let's not try to take an early lead and whatever. Let's just let's just take our time and we can sort of win this methodically. Just on the Trent point, it feels like it would be a waste not to play Doku because that space will be there. And um, you know, maybe it would be different if Liverpool had Canate fit, but they're probably gonna have to play Matip at right centre back. And in midfield, what Trent benefited from so much in, you know, the last few years was having Henderson play as the right side of number eight and Fabinho behind him and you know they would all shuffle around and kind of cover that space and he'd be less exploited by it but you know we've seen when he's come up against elite wingers like Vinicius Junior Real Madrid would always just like spam that ball into that space and it's not necessarily a criticism of Trent but it is a bit of a weak link in Liverpool's out of possession game. Right so into the predictions Colin you can kick us off. I'm gonna go 2-1 City. 2-1 City. Tom? I'll go 3-2 City. Oh, okay. You are going for a high scorer. And Ruben is going to go... 3 all. I'm going... Wowzers! Goals as well. <laughs> okay, brilliant. I'll go for a nil-nil just to, just to <laughs> cover, cover that one off. Brilliant. Nice one. Well worked, gents. Next up for us... Oh, it's that trouble at Goodison Park. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. So it is Everton against Manchester United, and everyone in this room, bar one person is looking forward to the battle between two of the most informed teams, the most entertaining, swashbuckling teams in the Premier League going head-to-head. Ruben Pinder, why do you not like it being billed as two really informed teams going head-to-head? Because loads of other teams are in the same form, and I am looking forward to it because they're both just... These clubs are just agents of chaos, and it's it's fun to watch Manchester United even when they're not particularly good um, depending on your allegiances but you know Everton have three wins and a draw in their last five games which is very good but so do Arsenal Liverpool have three wins and two draws Brentford have three wins in their last five it, I mean you know 
you can bill it as that if you want, but um, it's it's hardly it's hardly City Liverpool, is it? Well, no, it's not. No, it's not. But it is two sides that have hook or by crook put together two decent enough runs. But I guess the main subplot is that they are they are two clubs. Um, suffering different levels of crisis. Obviously, Manchester United have been limping from results here and there. Ten Hag under pressure. We know about that. We know the takeover issues. We've talked at length about that here on the weekend preview in the past. Everton, obviously, have got that 10-point deduction. And there has been so much coverage of their issues Uh, They're now back into the uh, bottom three. They've gone from 14 points down to four points. Uh, There is going to be so much more to come on this as well. And I think it's probably best to refer you for the full story, the in-depth story on Everton's 10-point deduction. You can check out the Monday edition of the Athletic Football Podcast where Matt Slater, David Ornstein and Paddy Boyland uh, talked us through it all and joined Io Akinwaleri. So do check that one out. But we can deal with the emotional side of it because it's going to add a huge extra element to the atmosphere at Goodison Park on Saturday. First things first, how do you think, Colin, it's going to feel at Goodison Park ahead of that game against Manchester United. Just take us into that that emotion if you can. Yeah, emotion is the word, isn't it? There's going to be a lot of it. There's going to be a lot of I think a lot of anger, a lot of a lot of frustration and I guess Goodison Park kind of feels like the angriest ground in the Premier League anyway, doesn't it? Their fans are constantly, constantly seem to be just annoyed. They're the loudest booers in the league by an absolute mile. Oh, absolutely. I've got one moment that sort of typifies that at Goodison Park. It happened a couple of seasons ago. Watford, having a really bad season, went there 1-5-2. And as someone was leaving the ground, an Everton fan. He leant over the side of the of the press box, nudged one of the local reporters, and said, "I hope you know how to spell shite." <laughs> to the uh, to the reporter, which I thought was a fantastic fantastic line, just to sort of sum up his emotions. But Colin, I, I cut you off there. You carry on. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, they're they're gonna they're gonna be annoyed, but. This is a, 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 a sort of an issue to, to, to rally around, isn't it? To have unity around too. And this now feels like a club who've been, who feel like they've been victimised. Uh, whether that's, that's right or wrong is beside the point. They feel that. And they'll rally around their team and they'll rally around their manager and the club. And, and let's face it, Everton have been, as we've said, have been in very good form. And I mean, this sort of feels like if you're going to get a 10-point deduction in any season for Everton, it sort of feels like this is the season to do it, doesn't it? I mean, they're only now with this deduction two points off safety. So if they win the if they win this game, they get be out of the bottom three, and that's that, that. That's it done. So they 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 are a team who've been in good form, who now feel very much on a unapologetically like a Sean Dyche team, don't they? They feel like they're they 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 don't they don't pretend to be anything they're not, and they're very good at what they do. They're a tough team to play against, and all the sort of stereotypes around around Sean Dyche. Quite a lot of them are actually true, and I don't I don't think there's any reason to to if from a Euro fan point of view to, to disagree with that. This is a team who haven't had a lot. A lot of investment certainly in the past year or so but they've they've assembled a real team spirit and an identity 
that you know what you're going to get from this Everton team, don't you? And you're going to get a lot, a lot of energy. You're going to have a team that are hard to break down, that are good on set pieces. And I've obviously got Dominic Calvert-Lewin, who's, who's arguably the most important player for any one team in the division in terms of what he brings, not just in terms of his goal threat, but his, but his all-around play. He's so important for them. And yeah, I mean, I, I can see this being a very difficult game um, for Man United. Um, and I think Everton, there's going to be a lot of emotion there, as we said, but that, that could be a positive thing. I was at Selhurst Park a couple of weeks ago when Everton came to um, to beat Palace three two, and I was I was very impressed. They're like it's it's kind of no frills but extremely efficient football. It's less long ball than people make out. Um, they do have some technicians in the side now, like you know McNeil and Harrison are both pretty serviceable wingers in the Premier League. And when as you say, when Calvert Lewin's fit, he's always a threat not only from crosses and kind of long balls, but more kind of creative in behind passes because because he's quick as well so they will certainly cause united problems yeah they're like a fast start as well so they've got the mo- joint most goals uh in the opening 10 minutes of any premier league team this season um and yeah mixed with that atmosphere that we're expecting you know perhaps man united not in great form themselves have a lot of character building games to come i think this could be yeah it could be key i think the opening 10 15 20 minutes Colin mentioned it there. Obviously, that the three teams at the bottom, Luton, Burnley and Sheffield United, all came up and, and are struggling. But it is certainly going to add an extra subplot to the to the relegation battle. But to be honest, they may well just be out of it in no time. Yeah, I mean, it, it does add juice to the narrative, um, certainly. And for, for Everton fans, it kind of, as you say, it does create this new kind of siege mentality. Yeah. Because um, they do, you know, they're always the underdog in their own city. They they kind of embody that spirit anyway. Um, and yeah, it will objectively make the relegation battle a bit more exciting. You know, Bournemouth are down there as well, still only got nine points. Um, but if Everton continue to play the way they do and benefit from, I guess, what we'd have to call a point deduction bounce for the reasons we've just explained, then they will probably climb out of it uh, pretty quickly. I'm not sure who they're... Upcoming fixtures uh, against United, Forest, Newcastle, Chelsea, Burnley. So you know, game, some games there that they can definitely get points. There's no from. easy games in the Premier League, as as the famous cliche goes. There are no easy games unless you play Sheffield United. Yeah, well, that's yeah, that that, that is true. Um, Tom, in terms of uh, Manchester United not having Eric Ten Hag in the in the dugout, he's got a, a touchline ban. I'm looking around, and there's not really sort of any expressions of it's really going to make much difference um, on any of our panel members? I mean, in, in your experience, Ruben, does it, should it make a difference if your if your manager is there? It, sh- it should make a difference, shouldn't it? It, right? it should, yeah. I mean, I don't see Ten Hag as much of a touchline shouter. You know, he, there are certainly more animated managers, you know, like Conte, Klopp, Simeone. You know, I remember Simeone got a touchline ban once in Spain and he put Captain Gabby on the bench and mic'd him up. Um, which was very on brand for for El Cholo, um, but I, I'm not sure whether United will miss Ten Hag's presence on the touchline at all. It's much more to do with their injury list is kind of the biggest factor, right? Because they got a lot of big names missing. There's a lot of pressure, therefore, on on the likes of of players that have been on the periphery, like Mason Mount, who's not delivered so far. Do you see any hope for him, Tom? Yeah, I'm more puzzled that he's not been given any kind of consistent run in the team because he's, you know, for the money that I paid for him, clearly there was a plan and they don't seem to be executing that plan at all. 
And, you know, obviously there's a lot of scrutiny on his performances, but when he's coming on, he's coming on in different game states. You know, United could be winning, they could be losing. He's coming on in left of midfield. He's coming on alongside um, Casemiro as a holding midfielder. He's playing as a number 10. He's, he's a bit all over the place. And, yeah, you know, he's his main strength really is being a kind of 360 footballer, kind of being able to receive a ball with his back to goal, spin around, play it left, right. You know, he's able to kind of play the ball in lots of directions. He's really good at kind of picking up spaces between the lines as well. And he's just not really had a chance to do that for Manchester United just yet. So, you know, they need a spark. Um, perhaps he is, is the kind of player who, with something to prove, could could be the one to offer. To, to drop another cliche, is he a victim of his own versatility? Potentially, yeah. I mean, because some of the, yeah, some of the things he's been expected to do, really, this season, I mean, I can't remember which game it was when he came on next to Casemiro, but it's just not what he does. He was trying to kind of orchestrate play from deep, and that's not what he's about. Well, one of the things about Mount is that he's a, well, from what you hear from people who, who work within the clubs is that he's a coach's dream. And coach, coaches love him in terms of what he does, in terms of listening to tactical instructions and carrying out various rules, which we sort of touched on there. But it's the Scott McTominay uh, situation whereby he's sort of come into the team. And Scott McTominay isn't, isn't Mason Mount. He doesn't have his qualities. But he, what Scott McTominay does, I suppose is add certainly a threat going going forward that, that United have really lacked this year. Um, he almost adds a bit of chaos himself. He's somebody who's a bit more direct. Maybe doesn't he's not as technically good as Mount, but he's somebody that just offers something different in midfield. And with you, I mean, we talked about United's injury list. It's just so it's it, it's destabilised them so much that from week to week you've no idea who's playing, who's coming back in the team, who's dropping out players, don't have any consistent partnerships or on a form, etc. Now we're looking at this this weekend's game. Uh, Luke Shaw might be involved. Rasmus Hoyland might be involved. Andre Onana even might be involved. He picked up a knock uh, with Cameroon. Those are just, I mean, those are three key players. And Luke Shaw, who's virtually missed the whole season, how important he is. And I know, I know a lot of players become more important the longer they're out of a team who aren't doing particularly well. But his form is so important for Marcus Rashford as well. And I think that's something to be overlooked this season. His overlapping runs, that was what created the space inside for Rashford a lot of the time last season. And without that, without that sort of chemistry down that flank, Rashford struggled. In terms of where the goals are coming from as well, perhaps you know Luke Shaw coming in, that might help Marcus Rashford pinning hopes on Anthony Martial maybe scoring against Everton because he's got a good record. You know, Hoyland, he's doing his best and he has is having some success, but it's still one of the main issues, is it not, Tom? Yeah, 100%. I mean, I've got quite a few Manchester United sporting friends who are getting a bit fed up of Bruno Fernandes uh, in that, you know, he's a player who's hero ball is the word they use where he's trying to do everything. Yeah. He's trying to play that pass when it isn't really on. But he is the player who is doing the most in this team um you know he's uh, averaging three shots a game this season 2.7 chances created per game this season so really high volume and while it might you know often not be the, the highest quality shot the highest quality chance that he's creating he is the one kind of bright spark like buzzing around picking up the ball being confident in those areas and yeah i think if you know it are going to get anything it probably is down to down to him okay prediction time colin how are your boys going to get on I'm going to go uh, with 2-1 from Man United. Okay, 2-1 win from Colin. Yeah, it is the kind of game that United win um, when when you don't think they are going to, but I'll go for 1-1. Okay, and Ruben? 1-0 uh, Everton, Calvert-Lewin, late header, back post, absolute limbs. Brilliant. 
sort of Duncan Ferguson-esque mm, sort of yeah. vibes. Okay, brilliant. Okay, next it is fourth against fifth. So Sunday, two o'clock, it is another big clash. The early season front runners, Tottenham, they've had a bit of a reality check recently. They've lost their last two. Whilst the surprise package of the season, Aston Villa, they've had a fantastic 2023. With only Manchester City having more points this calendar year, Aston Villa tied with Arsenal. They've got 68. Manchester City have collected 81. Um, we haven't really discussed Aston Villa that much this season so far. So let's start off with them. Unai Emery is obviously doing a, a great job. They've got a great identity. There's a great buzz at Villa Park. Just uh, assess for me, Colin, how well Unai has done. It's remarkable when you look at it, what, what, what the situation that he inherited what, about a year ago um, from Steven Gerrard when they were really struggling in, in the Premier League. It looked like they were probably relegation candidates. And he came in and just transformed the, the, the mood about the club, um, the way they play, the, getting the fans behind them and everything else. And we're looking at this game. Aston Villa first in the table in terms of home form. They've won all six of their games last season, uh, this season at home. But they're only 13th uh, in their away record. And that actually stretches back into last season too when they won their last five home league games of that season and they didn't win any of the last five away league games. So this is something that really is something that's associated with Unai Emery in particular because in his last season in charge of Sevilla, they won 14 matches in La Liga and all of them came at home. So this isn't this isn't a new thing whereby his, his approach for home matches and away matches there's clearly something different in terms of how they set up and the mentality around it but it's just in general they've been so impressive and they did win away at Tottenham funnily enough um, around the time of the new year uh, last season so this is a game which 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 they like and obviously this is a different Tottenham right this is an Antwoosticogu team but it's also a Tottenham team that have got a lot of injury absentees there's been changes behind the scenes at Aston Villa in terms of recruitment Monchi um, Unai Emery's sort of old pal has has joined him at the club and that's obviously had a, a more recent impact but overall in terms of the recruitment that has been done since he has arrived who's who's impressed you the most who do you think wow that that's actually that was a really shrewd signing most of them to be honest i mean yeah. um you've got to admit that villa have been in a kind of you know lucky position that they've been able to sign players like musa diaby who was you know one of the best wingers in in europe last season Pau Torres, a lot of people were, you know, after his signature for for a long time and obviously Villa were in a position to sign him once uh, Emery joined. But yeah, it's I like that Emery has a very kind of defined play style and all of these clearly fit into it. Um, with Diaby, it's great because Emery has, um, you know, especially when he was at Villarreal, he had a, a tendency to kind of play four midfielders and play a 4-4-2 and have, you know, what he's doing at Villa at the moment is John McGinn, Jacob Ramsey there, the kind of midfielders out wide in wide positions. And then Diaby, the winger, is kind of joining Ollie Watkins up front. And that's exactly what's happened at Villa. It was what was happening at, at Villarreal as well. So all of these signings look to have been made with a plan in mind. Um, Pau Torres as well for their build-up play. If you look at Villa's kind of top five pass connections this season, Pau Torres is in basically all of them. So a lot is going through him. 
so yeah, I, I think it's nice that you know they've been able to sign these players, but they've also picked and choose like the best players that they could have done for those positions. I, th- I think one of the things you've you've got to say as well is that a lot of the top performers for Villa this season, probably Mr. Diaby aside, he's an incredibly talented player. But you look at Ollie Watkins, John McGinn, Douglas Louise. Obviously, you mentioned Ramsey there as well, and at the back, Enzo Codza has been so impressive this season. Cash and Dinia is the fullbacks are arguably among the best fullback parents in the league, um, for my money. And those are those are players who who were signed in relatively affordable deals and have been at the club for maybe two, three, four years now. And that that just suggests that even though they've they've spent a lot of money, but they've actually improved the players they have there to fit this this system. They're a team that just fully they seem to fully buy in to what they're being coached like they're just fully behind it even when it goes wrong there there's no there's no issue in terms of coaching or or sort of like the, the the kind of lines between the players or anything like that they're just a well coached team and they know exactly what they're doing it doesn't reflect that well on Steven Gerrard does it the way he immediately <laughs> improved all of those players who are already there as you say um it, it feels like a really good match in terms of manager and size and ambition of club um when you think about the clubs in Spain that he managed you know Villarreal and Sevilla it's it's quite similar vibes whereas um you know arsenal was a bit more turbulent because of you know succeeding wenger etc um but yeah i mean i absolutely adore ollie watkins like i I think he's one of the most complete strikers um in the league especially like his his hold-up play he didn't really impress that much for england um in the 50 minutes that he got uh, the other day but he is so crucial to how they play yeah, I mean, with Watkins as well, one of the big things that it's been said that has been said to Watkins by Emery and his coaching staff is to stay more central with his forward runs. Um, Showing and, you know, clips of Edinson Cavani at PSG, apparently. Yeah, I mean, what a what a player to to learn from. And you know, you, it is actually quite funny because you go back and look at these Villa games, and you know, Watkins was making a lot of kind of pointless runs out wide. You know, just dragging this kind of play over with him, receiving the ball, trapped in the corner flag, couldn't really go anywhere. Now he's staying more central, he's pinning the centre-backs, you've got the likes of McGinn who can get forward, Diaby has a lot more space to operate. It's just, it's a simple change, but it's obviously worked for the team and it's worked for Oli Watkins. The circumstances for Ange Postacoglu at Tottenham, how do you feel, Ruben, Tottenham will respond to not only that late defeat, but maybe getting their head around how they're going to cope without so many key players? Yeah, it's going to be difficult because, you know, as much as Ange Postacoglu will commit to his ideas and say things like, you know, if we go down to nine men, we'll still have a go, etc. Yeah. It's going to be difficult against against his Villa team who will enjoy trying to exploit the space behind their high line. Players on the periphery who maybe haven't had a chance yet need to step up. I, I would like to see Brian Hill given a chance at Spurs and maybe this is the environment for Giovanni Lo Celso to come back into form you know, with Madison out and and Bissouma as well being suspended, still they're going to need somebody to progress that ball. Which, you know, Hoiberg is that's not his strong point necessarily. So, um, yeah, they're they're going to struggle. It's, and it's the main problem really is is the two missing centre backs, like the uh, the injury to Van der Ven and the suspension to Romero. Just so many tactical systems that are that aggressive rely on having mobile centre backs, right? And when you lose your first choice too, it's it's never going to be easy. Prediction time. Colin? I'm going to go uh, 1-1. Uh, I, I, would, I would say, though, that what is quite interesting about Tottenham is that they've conceded four goals in 90 minutes plus in their last two games. And obviously one of those games had, had nine men, so, okay, it's slightly skewed, but it, the same thing happened against Wolves. You just kind of, kind of think, is that is that an issue? 
I mean, obviously they've got a stretch squad, um, and yeah, I just think the injuries are going to be going to be big for them. But Villa's away form isn't great, so I'm just going to sit in the fence. But hasn't there been loads of goals in in added time anyway for everyone? They've Kevin's. benefited from it as well, haven't they? Yeah. Sheffield oh yeah. United oh yeah. They they, they have. Yeah. But they but they're fast starters, right? I mean, their their goals again. The goal against Chelsea in the sixth minute. Goal against Wolves in the third minute. They love getting off to a fast start and then sort of letting the, the the game get away from the other team. But if that doesn't happen, yeah, I'm not sure. Okay. Yeah, I'll go for one one as well. It'd be a bit boring. Sit on the fence. Ruben, everything is telling me that Villa are going to win, except for their away form. But maybe this is the one where, where they break it. So I'll go for a narrow 1-0 Villa win. Okay. It'd be interesting if it happens. That would be three defeats in a row for Tottenham. Well, let's get stuck into some of the other games quickly. And we should just spend a little bit of time talking about Newcastle against Chelsea. All of a sudden now for Chelsea, they're having a really solid run of form, Tom. And, and you know, how do you, how do you look at this fixture now these two teams do you, do you feel that there's one moving in the right direction another sort of treading water in Newcastle at the moment yeah I think so I mean I think everything kind of makes a lot more sense at Chelsea now in terms of the players the system where players should be how things are going to work I think Cole Palmer's actually helped quite a lot with that because he's really good you know we saw it against City ironically that he was very good at dropping in spaces identifying where to go to to help his teammates get out of trouble and the fact that he can do that means that Raheem Sterling doesn't need to do it on, on that right-hand side. That means Sterling can stay further forward. It means um, Reese James can also bomb forward a little bit as well. And they can kind of turn into a back three with Kukurea on the left, who another player who we've not really known what, you know, what his future was going to be in this team. But now he looks like the ideal kind of left centre-back when, when Chelsea are pushing forward. So I think everything's starting to, to make a bit more sense. If Chelsea win at St James's. That would move them to just one point behind Newcastle on 19 points. Newcastle have 20. Obviously, they would continue that upward uh, trajectory. In terms of who might break into the the top five, we were talking about it on the on the last episode when we had the the round table, and obviously a lot of the panel were basically saying, yeah, Man City, Liverpool, Arsenal. But then Tottenham and Aston Villa, they're sort of, those positions might be up for grabs. Do you see Newcastle making it up into there? Or do you make, or do you feel that Chelsea are likely to make a real go of it? Well, Newcastle are really suffering from a long injury list at the moment. Yeah. So if they had a fully fit squad, then it, it may be a different story. But we saw in their game against Bournemouth how badly they missed some of those individuals, you know. And Kieran Trippier, bless him trying to defend his teammates but going over to to the fans it it felt a little bit like things could um maybe i'm overreacting or overthinking it but there's potential for toxicity there if they continue to underperform um given that they've raised their own standards yeah. so high last season it's been such a spike in expectation exactly yeah um so i i think you know pre that chelsea game that spurs played i'd have had them nailed down for fourth at least um, and now it's you know it's all kind of temporarily fallen apart. But I I think Chelsea are more likely to go on that upward trajectory um, now. And and you know when fifth place gets you Champions League, and that's hugely important for Chelsea, having spent all of that money to kind of justify it, you know, in their in their accounts and to their fans, um, you know, having spent so much. Yeah, I, I 
unfortunately, I think Chelsea will probably climb up into into the top five. Yeah, I think adding to that, Christopher Nkunku is going to be massive coming into the squad as well. I mean, he's been just such a ridiculously consistent goal provider over the last couple of seasons at RB Leipzig. I mean, 36 goals in the last two Bundesliga seasons, 17 assists on top of that. So that's 53 goal contributions in just over 50 or so full games. So, yeah, he's prolific. And, you know, we've talked a lot about Nico Jackson, but this kind of takes a bit of pressure off him and allows him to have his off days and, and Gunku to have his off days. They can work together. They can get each other through their kind of b- bad patches. So I think that's another factor which is definitely working in Chelsea's favour. I don't mean to temper expectations too much for Chelsea because obviously they are on a... They, they, they've been performing well and they've been getting good results. But I think this Chelsea team enjoy playing against teams who, who come at them a little bit more, as Tottenham did, as uh, as Manchester City did as well. I think Pochettino is a coach who we said about Pep hearing chaos. I think Pochettino embraces it quite a lot of the time. And what Chelsea's problem consistently has been, even this season, have been against teams who are in maybe the lower half of the table or teams who don't come out as much, who are happy to sort of sit back. They don't like playing against a low block. They don't really have a team set up to, to break those defences down. So it's going to be interesting to see for this game because Newcastle have so many injury absentees, as we've said. And I think another thing about Newcastle is that so much of their emotional pull, both both not just not just, not just just supporters, but players as well, has been in Champions League games. I mean, you talk, talked about how many of those players are making their Champions League debuts. They're not used to playing that sort of heavy rotation of games of, at the very, very top level. So it's very difficult uh, to adjust um, in those circumstances. So I think this is a good time to play them. And I wonder as well, with Newcastle having home advantage, will that actually benefit for Chelsea in that sense of what we just talked about? Because Newcastle will feel a bit more of an onus to, to come out and come forward a bit and might leave a bit more space, which Chelsea will enjoy and exploit. Whereas if this was at Stamford Bridge, I think I think Eddie Howe would, would love a nil-nil. I think he would take that result all day long. But at home, I'm not I'm not sure. I'm not sure that's acceptable in a way. Mm, I mean, it's, sorry, it's, they certainly need to be seen to be going for it. Yeah, yeah, it's one of those games where if both teams had their way, then the other one would have the ball and they could kind of spring pressing traps and counter attacks and it would be kind of end to end but yeah when you're at home there is an obligation to take the game to the other team which I think Manchester United suffer from but that's another conversation A word about some of the other games coming up very quick sort of bullet points Uh, Sheffield United against Bournemouth at the bottom that's a big one isn't it? It's absolutely massive I mean if Bournemouth win that game they'll go at least five points clear of a drop zone which a couple of weeks ago we were very surprised they've been saying that but then Sheffield United if they win they're three unbeaten out of nowhere and you know they've got Burnley next week so that's just absolutely huge whichever way that game goes yeah it's going to be massive You've got Forest against Brighton. Obviously, a one year is a, is a huge miss for Nottingham Forest. Uh, Burnley, we know they've they've only got that one win. West Ham will fancy their chances at Turf Moor. Luton, Crystal Palace. Are you going to Kenilworth Road? I won't. No, I mean, that's, d- I would say that's probably a good choice just for your <laughs> just for your you know yeah. emotions and, the, and enjoyment of life. I mean, it's but, tiny, isn't it? The yeah. demand for tickets is a. Uh... obviously yeah. very difficult. A um, couple of other games: Brentford against Arsenal. I called it the David Raya. Derby earlier on. Obviously, he can't play in the game because he's on loan from Brentford to Arsenal. But it'll be interesting to see how that one pans out. That was a good Friday night football back in when Brentford first came up. Their first game, yeah, their first game. And so, yeah, we will we will watch that one with interest at five thirty. And then the Monday night football is Fulham against Wolves, which doesn't sound particularly inspiring. But I guess the subplot to that is that Fulham are one of the low hanging fruit at the moment. And Wolves, who you would expect to be one of the low-hanging fruit, are actually having 
a pretty good season. Any other games that catch your eye over this weekend if this Premier League action isn't good enough for you? Or have I just got three blank expressions in front of me? Oh, no, Tom's got one. There's Monaco against uh, PSG uh, on Friday night, I think that is, in, in Liga. So that's pretty big at the top of the, the French division. And Juventus against Inter Milan is, is another big one um, in Serie A on Sunday. So there is a lot to look forward to. I hope you enjoy this weekend. Colin, Tom, Ruben, thanks very much for coming on. Enjoy your weekends. Thank you. That's it for today. Io is going to be back with you on Monday. I'll be back with uh, another weekend preview next Friday. If you want to sign up to The Athletic for just £1.99 or dollars a month, it is for an entire year. The offer is available for you at theathletic.com forward slash football pod. Take care of yourselves and enjoy the weekend. 